Well, as these men and women are passing these offering plates, thank you so much for giving. It made such a huge uh, difference. Uh, it really does. And if the offering plate has gone by you or if it's some distance away, go ahead and turn to Philippians, the little book of Philippians in the New Testament. We're in this series called Joy in Troubled Times, and those two don't seem to go together, do they? Joy in Troubled Times. And we'll look into chapter 1, finish that chapter here in uh, just a moment. And by the way, if you're not receiving some prayer prompts um, where we are united as a church family, praying for some of the needs that we have, some of our leadership, uh, elders, staff, deacons, small group leaders, uh, life group leaders, uh, you can text PRAY to 903-290-1395. You might just jot that down or actually take your phone out right now text PRAY uh, to that number, and you'll begin tomorrow receiving text messages with specific instructions about prayer. In May of 2000, uh, my wife and I sat with 50,000 people at Shelby Farms, right in the heart of Memphis, for an event called One Day. It was a day of worship. It had been raining. There was mud everywhere, but we were all seated on the ground. Was anybody at one day in this room? Anybody here? Yeah. I can take you where I was sitting when a middle-aged pastor named John Piper spoke these words. If you want your life to count, if you want the ripple effect of pebbles that you drop to become waves that reach the ends of the earth and roll on for centuries and into eternity, you don't have to have a high IQ or EQ. You don't have to have good looks or riches. You don't have to come from a fine family or a fine school. You do have to know the few great things that matter and then be willing to live for them, to be set on fire by them, and die for them. Then he looked out at a crowd of mainly young adults and said, not everyone in this crowd wants your life to make a difference. Hundreds of you don't care whether you make a lasting difference for something great. You just want people to like you. If people would just like you, you'd be satisfied. Or if you just had a good job with a good wife and a couple of good kids and a nice car and a long weekend and a few good friends and a fun retirement and a quick and easy death and no hell, if you could have that minus God, you'd be satisfied. That's a tragedy in the making. Three weeks ago, we got word at our church, Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards had both been killed in Cameroon. Ruby was over 80 single all of her life. She poured it out for one great thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the unrich, unreached, the poor, and the sick. Laura was a widow, a medical doctor, pushing 80 years old, serving at Ruby's side in Cameroon. The brakes failed. The car went over the cliff. Both were killed instantly. And I asked my people, was that a tragedy? Two lives driven by one great vision to be spent in unheralded service to the perishing poor for the glory of Jesus Christ, two decades after almost all their American counterparts have retired to throw their lives away on trifles in Florida or Arizona. No, not a tragedy. That is a glory. Their lives were not wasted. Their lives were not lost. I'll tell you what a tragedy is, he said. I'll show you how to waste your life. 
Let me read to you from Reader's Digest, February 2000, page 98. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler and play softball and collect shells. He said, at first when I read that, I thought it was a joke, a spoof on the American dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God-given life, and let the great work of your life before you give an account to your Creator be this, playing softball and collecting shells. Picture them before Christ on the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells? That, he said, is tragedy. People today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. You will if you do not make some radical decisions now and set your face like flint to walk another way so that when you meet him, which I will do any day now, I will hear, well done, good and faithful servant, instead of those awful words, fool. I'm pleading with you. Pause for just a moment. And this middle-aged pastor said, I am pleading with you like a father who loves you dearly. Now, desire your life count for something great. Long for your life to have eternal significance. Do not coast through life without a passion. And friends, i got to tell you, as I sat there, God ambushed me. I felt nailed to the ground because what John Piper was saying was this, don't waste your life. You only get one shot life in this world, and it is possible to waste it. One of the saddest movies I've ever seen, and I do not recommend this movie to anyone, 1969, Easy Rider, was produced. It's a story of two men, Wyatt and Billy, who went down to Tijuana, sold, bought, sold drugs there, took the money, went back to L.A., got on their motorcycles, and rode across the southwest to New Orleans to arrive at Mardi Gras time and spent days strung out on LSD, on drugs, on alcohol, and prostitutes. And then as they're returning home, one night Wyatt looks at Billy and says, Billy, we blew it. We blew it. The next day they were killed. End of the movie. We blew it. You know, there's something worse than death. It's wasting your life. And that pastor in that movie said, don't waste your life. And it raises the question, well, how, how do you waste your life? And what does a life that is well lived look like? And what's the purpose? Three years ago, I, I had a sabbatical, and I decided to walk across Spain. It's called the Camino de Santiago. It's a 500-mile it's a walk. 200,000 people every year make this walk. And one day I'm walking along, and there was a young woman walking in front of me, and I caught up with her, and I found out her name was Anna. She was born in the Philippines, raised in Spain, and now lives in London, and she's a fabulous, successful, fabulously successful software developer. So I said, Anna, why are you walking on this, this walk? And she said to me, I'm looking for the meaning of life. What would you have said if you were me? 
You go to high school graduations, you go to college graduations, you read the self-help books, and they say you find the purpose of life and the meaning of life by going inside and looking at your desires and your dreams. She had done all of that. And to quote a song, she still hadn't found what she was looking for. What does it mean to waste your life? And how do you keep from wasting your life? You only have one life to live in this world. Then nothing is more important than finding out what the creator of your life says is the purpose. And he speaks crystal clearly in the book that he has given us, inspired by men, infallible and inerrant, the Bible. And the Bible is crystal clear, and Paul explains it in the passage in Philippians we're going to read. So I'd like to read Philippians chapter 1, verse 20 through 30, into the chapter. And would you stand for just a moment in honor of God's Word as I read this for us? As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all, I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, here in prison, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm, I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or, or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is God's word, and you can be seated. You and I are on this planet for a few years for the same purpose for which God created this planet, and that is to glorify Him. The heavens declare the glory of God, says Psalm 19. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God, says 1 Corinthians 10. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, says Isaiah 43. So what does it mean to glorify God? What does that mean? Well, that word glory carries the idea of a reputation. And one of the meanings of glorifying God is this, making God look good. Now, He is good. A lot of people don't think He's good. But to glorify God means you live your life in such a way as to make God look good. So why am I here on this earth? 
Why am I here? Now, verse 20 says this. It's my eager expectation and hope. I will in no, not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now, you're in prison, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And I love the way the International Children's Bible reads. It says this, the thing I want and hope for is that I will not fail Christ in anything. I hope I'll have the courage now, as always, to show the greatness of Christ in my life here on earth. I want to do that if I die or if I live. Paul says, I don't want to waste my life. I will live in such a way that makes Christ look great. And he uses that word for honor, mega luno, mega, big. I want to exalt Christ with my life. I want people, when they hear my words and watch the way I live, to draw one conclusion, and that is that God is great. The purpose of life, what I told Anna on the walk, the reason we are here on earth is to make Jesus look magnificent. Two ways to magnify God. We talked about this last week. You can use a microscope or you can use a telescope to magnify something. You use a microscope, you look at things that are teeny tiny, just tiny, and when you put a microscope on them, they, they look bigger than they are. That's not the way we glorify God. That's not the way we magnify Him because He is big. The other way is a telescope, which you use to look at things that look tiny to us, but they are huge. Google Hubble Telescope. The universe is massive. And a telescope takes something that looks tiny, but it's huge, and it makes it look as huge as it is. And that's the purpose of life, says Paul. I want to magnify Christ so that people see him as huge and strong and good and wise and loving and righteous as he really is. That's the purpose of my life, he says. That's what life is for, to put Jesus on display for the whole world to see. And we waste our lives if we do not pray and think and plan and work to figure out how to make Jesus look magnificent in every area of our life. I mean, God created us for this. He saved us for this. He's called us to this, to make him look great. And there's a million ways to magnify God. There's a million ways to make Jesus look magnificent. You can do it in pleasure when you realize that every good gift that you have, every bit of pleasure that you have is it's a gift from God. And we thank Him for it and acknowledge, I don't deserve this. It's all your goodness. You can magnify Him in pleasure. You can magnify Him in pain. And you know what catches people's eyes? It's not the guy who wins the Super Bowl and thanks God. Not the rich man who attributes all that he has to God. It's when we give our riches away and count it gain. It's when we show people that money and possessions, and that's not our treasure. Christ is our treasure. It's not our car. It's not our house, not our job, not land that we own. Now, here's the problem. Paul says, for me to live as Christ, and you go, okay, Paul, I understand that. I understand how you are trying to live in such a way that Christ is seen as huge and wonderful 
and amazing in your life. I understand that. But how do you, how do you use death to glorify him? How can you make much of God when you die? That's my question. It says in verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And if you think about it, death takes away everything, doesn't it? Death takes your family away. Takes your job away. Your dreams away. Takes your friends away. Everything you enjoy doing. Everything you enjoy having. And when you add up everything you lose in death, and all you have left is Jesus, and you say, it's gain, you make him look wonderful. You make him look great. Verse 23 says, it's far better. It's better. So dying with Jesus is better than hugging your kids? Dying with Jesus is better than grandkids? Dying with Jesus is better than friends at school? Dying with Jesus is better than your dream retirement or your dream house? I mean, how does that work? Brad Arch was a 38-year-old friend of mine who developed pancreatic cancer. And Brad died of pancreatic cancer, leaving two daughters and his wife Kay. And Brad made Jesus look great when he died because he wanted the nurses and the doctors and all of his friends, he wanted his daughters and his wife to know that Jesus is better, that the love of Christ is better than life itself. So he just sums up both halves of the verse. He says, Christ is glorified when he's more precious to you than all that life can give, and he's more precious than all that, life, that death itself can take. And these are not the words of a neurotic. <laughs> he's not contemplating suicide when he says, I'm trying to choose is it, it's, it, to be with Christ. That's, that's better. That's far better. It's gain or to be with you. It's not wrong to pray for healing. It's not wrong to have insurance. It's not wrong to lock your doors. It's not wrong to flee from a crazy, un- unruly crowd. He's not, he's not a man who is so tired of living, he just wants to go to heaven. It's not the case at all. But he, as he weighs the two, he says this, if I die, it's Jesus, more of Jesus. And if I'm here, I'm working for your progress, for your growth in the faith. I want fruit from my life. I want my life to matter by building people up and blessing people and inspiring their faith and working for their joy. He says, it's a win-win. I can't lose whether I die or whether I live. He said, I hardly know what to choose if I had to choose. Both prospects are great. I'll tell you what, friends. You decide to live your life to make Jesus look great. You will not live a dull life. You'll not live a comfortable life, but you will not live a dull life, and you will never hear those words, you wasted it. You blew it. And when Paul writes this, he's doing what he always is doing. He's he's reminding people who are in the church that people outside the church are watching. In fact, he uses that word in verse 20, sign. You ever driven past a sign and snapped your head and went, what was that? He tells us 
how to magnify Jesus in such a way that you turn people's heads. In fact, he says there are four different ways that in the church, that we who are Christians can turn a few heads and magnify Christ. Verses 27 through 30. Let me just read it once again. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. That's one way to turn a few heads, and that's consistency. Just, I want to hear you're standing firm in one spirit. What's the initial reaction of people who are not Christians when someone says, hey, I just came to Christ. I've just been born again. I've just, I've just received salvation. What's the average reaction of people when they hear that? Is it, I wish that would happen to me. That's wonderful. No. The average reaction of non-Christians is, he'll be back to normal tomorrow. Right? I mean, didn't Madonna go through a stage like this? I mean, um, it's just a phase. I mean, yesterday it was redoing the bathroom. Today it's Jesus. He'll revert back. People are very cynical in our time. And Paul says, you want to change that? You want to make Christ look great? You want to mark some hearts? The single most powerful weapon is consistency over the long haul. Makes a profound impact on people. Just wears them down and it magnifies the power of Christ. And if you and I are going to be consistent over the long haul in our walk with Jesus, it's, it requires private consistency with Jesus on our knees saying, for me to live today is Christ and if I die, that's gain and opening his word and letting his work speak to us. Because, friends, you cannot be consistent for Christ in public if you're not consistent with Christ in private. So it just takes some private time with the Lord. And he mentions something else. He says, you know what else turns heads? Community. He says, I want to hear that you're in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the sake of the gospel. And you know what catches the attention of non-Christian people today? Christian hostilities, Christian infighting, Christian power struggles, internal divisions in churches, and people say, hey, I, I see that in business, I see it in politics, I, I see it in institutions. I, my own family's bickering all the time. Many people are just victims of factions. Some of you are victims of this kind of infighting going on. And people just wonder, is there ever going to be a group of people that just talk straight to each other without shooting each other, that speak the truth in love, they accept one another, they resolve conflict by sitting down and trying to work it out? Can you ever find a group like that? People just stand together. And Paul says, Christ will be magnified. If you, can point, if you can point to your church and say, join us, we're not perfect, but we're real, and we love each other, and we're going to stand side by side with each other, and we're going to work through things together, we're committed to each other, join us, because the most important team in the world is the local church. No question about that. And the world sees that and looks takes notice, turns his head when the world sees a group of people like that committed to one another. So consistency, community, he mentions something else, courage in the face of opposition. He says, not being frightened by your opponents, those who, those who oppose you. 
It's no secret that we live in a time when if you speak for Jesus, stand for what Jesus stands for, you will be labeled. You'll be labeled racist, homophobic, sexist, intolerant, fanatic. I don't like those names. I don't think those names describe me. I don't think they describe most of Christians that I know. That's just not true, but here's the danger. The danger is being silent so that we don't get labeled like that. And so many of us are just silent. We don't say a word about Christ when he opens the door to a conversation for fear of being labeled. And some people walk away from the faith because they do not want to be labeled. And may we be like those in the early church who just could disagree with each other and disagree with people outside the church, but people could not get away from the fact that they loved each other and they loved people outside the church. They couldn't get away from that. He mentions one last thing. Consistency, community, courage. Being a preacher, I was looking for another C. I came up with confident, but I'm not really happy with that. He talks about struggling. He talks about suffering. Learning to suffer with dignity. Did you catch that in verse 29? It's been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. There's an explosive power that's unleashed when Christians suffer with quiet dignity, confidence in the Lord. I mean, Paul had seen that. He has been beaten within an inch of his life. He and his buddy are locked in stocks, and their raw backs are rubbing against the back of the wall. They're chained in the bottom of a filthy prison And rather than whining and complaining, what do they say? Let's sing. (laughs) And as a result, a jailer comes to Christ. His life is marked by Christians who are suffering with a sense of confidence in the Lord, a sense of dignity. And more than anything else, when you and I suffer with one eye on eternity, Without losing hope, that just rocks people to their core because outside of Christ, where do you go when you hurt? You hurt so badly you don't think you're going to survive. You have nothing to hold on to. You've lost everything. Where do you go? And it shines like a searchlight when Christians suffer with hope because we know this is not an accident. Did you catch verse 29? He says, it's been granted to you to suffer for Christ. Like it's a gift? Thanks, Lord. Do you have any other gifts for me? It's been granted to you to suffer. Because according to the Scripture, suffering is not only the consequence of being a Christian. Suffering is a means of glorifying Christ. And let's face it, we live in a world, and there is tragedy and heart, but we live in a broken world. Life is just difficult. So what? Says Paul. Jesus is Lord. For that I'm going to rejoice, he says. You ever suffered for Christ? So I don't know if I ever have or not. He talks about you shall also suffer for his sake. 
I believe that all suffering that comes in the path of obedience, all suffering that takes place for a Christian, and you're seeking to walk with God, can be called suffering for Christ. It doesn't matter whether it's cancer or conflict or persecution or sickness or an accident. If you're walking with Jesus, if you're trusting Him, you're not cursing Him like Job's wife, curse Him and die. You're trusting Jesus. You're suffering for Christ. That is counted as suffering for His sake. Do you suppose the Apostle Paul getting pneumonia for his work, from his work and exposure, would that be suffering for Christ? He makes no distinction between getting a cold for sitting in prison or getting beaten for Christ. For him, all suffering that takes place while he's walking with the Lord, while he's serving, is part of the cost of discipleship. And you know what this area needs? It needs about 300 people whose lives have been turned upside down, who do not love what everybody else loves, and they don't fear what everybody else fears, who are willing to lose and count it gain because they have Christ. He's their treasure. You know, as long as we're alive, as long as the Lord leaves us here, there are good works to be done. There are people to love, there are scriptures to be read, there are sins to be repented of, there are truths to be learned, there's prayers to be prayed, other people to be forgiven, there are opportunities to, for, to help lost people meet Christ, there are opportunities to serve suffering people, to encourage discouraged people, to feed hungry people, to comfort lonely people. Because of Christ, every breath we take matters. Matters for eternity, and eternity is even better. Paul says, to live is Christ, to die is gain, because death may separate our spirit from our bodies, but it cannot separate us from Christ. I want to ask the worship team to come on up for just a moment, and we're going to sing in just a moment, but I want to say a, a, a couple more things. One is this. I've been here long enough to know this is a pretty diverse congregation. You guys are different in so many ways, but there are two things that are true of everyone in this room. We're all going to die. Welcome to Fellowship Bible Church. We're all going to die. <laughs> and we're all going to stand before Jesus someday. That is true of every person in this room, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, whether you're curious or you're a committed Christian. We're all going to die, and we're all going to meet Jesus someday. And you will stand before him either as a friend or an enemy. You will stand before him for blessing or for cursing, for salvation or condemnation. You'll stand before him to spend eternity laughing and rejoicing, or you'll spend, stand before him to spend eternity weeping and torment. You will stand before him to every, have every tear wiped away, or you will stand before him to have tears forever. The gospel says, the Bible says, because of God's great love, he gave his son at the cost of the death of his son provides life for those who were turned from their sins and put their trust in him. The most radical message that's ever been spoken in the history of the world. And I want to say this final word to students. So if you're a young adult, if you're a high school student, maybe a middle school student, I want to say a word to you. I believe with all of my heart when there is a generation that counts Jesus their greatest treasure, we will see the Great Commission finished. 
because we won't see the Great Commission finished unless there are people who are willing to risk life and health and limb and even family for the sake of their greatest treasure, that is Christ. And they will go to places where they are not wanted for the sake of Christ. And we will see the Great Commission fulfilled. I hope you're that generation. I pray that God does not say over your generation what he is likely to say over my generation. Wasted. You wasted it on yourself. I hope you don't look back like Wyatt said to Billy. You blew it. You blew it. Because if your generation buys into the American dream of comfort and safety and ease and security, you'll be passed over. God will get his work done some other way. But you may have the word fool written on your generation. But if your passion is to display the worth of Jesus with your life, and it may cost you your life, and this church may have martyrs who come out of it, you will see heads turn and lives change, perhaps thousands. Let's pray together. Lord, my prayer is for my life, for this church, that we will hear words, your life was not wasted. Your life displayed the glory of Jesus. And you did it in life, and you did it in, in dying. And as a result, people's lives were marked. So, Lord, I pray for us consistency. I pray we will be united in community. Pray, Lord, we would have courage when what we say is not comfortable. And even we run the risk of being labeled. And I pray that when our season of suffering comes, that we will not only endure it, but not waste the opportunity to point to the goodness and the greatness of Jesus. Lord, if there's someone here who has not bowed the knee to Christ and called him King and Lord, may it happen today. Would you create the miracle of a new birth today in that person? Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.